Guess what? We're going to finish 1 John today. That is, if you believe me, we will. We're doing really good on time. So anyway, let's read. We're going to begin in verse 18, cover verses 18 through 21, which takes us to the end of the chapter. We'll read that together now. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, or dear children, some translations read, keep yourselves from idols, including balloon gods. No. Amen. That's, he ends it with an amen, so be it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have been able to get through this entire book of 1 John. And now as we prepare this morning to finish it out, we pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon this teaching that you would open our hearts and minds to give us a clear understanding and much insight into what John is trying to convey to us in this final section. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John starts with a phrase that's been quite repetitive in this book of 1 John. We know. It's really important to John that his little children, his dear children, know. Not just hope, although we do have a sure and certain hope in Christ. But Christ didn't die on the cross so that we could be confused doubtful, unsure, we know. And so John is telling us, this is not just my personal opinion, this is not speculation, it's a fact. We know, and of course this is going to challenge us a little bit here, we know whoever is born of God does not sin. Really, we do know that, huh? It's important to understand what John is saying here. Any true born-again Christian, by the way, there are scores of what are called nominal Christians running around. That means in name only. A nominal Christian, and recently I coined the term identify as Christian because we now live in a world where people are identifying as all kinds of things, right? It has no necessary relationship to who and what they really really are. And so I coined the term those who identify as Christians. The traditional term is nominal Christian. I just heard the other day that there are an estimated, and I'm not sure how they broke this down, with evangelical versus Catholic versus what have you. But the number that they gave was 183 million Christians in America. Now, that might sound like a lot. But first of all, I would point out that that's only about half of the U.S. population that now identifies as Christian. That number has steadily declined over the years. My suspicion would be I haven't investigated this thoroughly, but if you were to go back to the colonial days, uh, the Revolutionary War days, the founding of our nation, the early years of the United States, you would probably find more like 90% identifying as Christian. Now we're at about 50%, and out of that 50%, my own uh, calculations are that perhaps half of the half are really sincere about following Christ. My best guess over the years has been that we have about a 25% of the population that are true believers, true followers of Christ. We know, says John, that whoever is born of God, any true born-again Christian, does not continue to sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you all know this verse. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. 
God doesn't just go take you down to Earl Scheib and put on a 99.95 paint job. Any of you ever done that? A lot of these uh, used car uh, guys that uh, it's called curbing cars, where they buy a used car and they turn around and resell it. Well, they'll go down for the cheapy paint job, make it look real nice and shiny, and may not be worth a hoot, but they'll make it look good. God doesn't do that. He doesn't just give us a new paint job. We are a new creation, according to the Scriptures. And this is a mystery that in this life I don't think we'll ever fully understand. And we do still have a dual nature. We all know this, right? We have the old man, the new man, the man of the flesh. And when I say man, I know we're living in a world today where everything's just gender weirdness. But traditionally, mankind stands for everybody. Men, women, boys, girls, mankind, humankind. And so, a new creation. But we have a dual nature. The book of Romans, we covered a lot of that in the book of Romans from s several years ago. You can always go back and request uh, copies of these uh, teachings on CD or DVD over at the cafe. But we, we went into a lot of detail about this struggle, this battle that we are going to continue to struggle with throughout the rest of our earthly days. We are a new creation, but we still live in our mortal, fleshly bodies, and there is still a struggle on the interior between the flesh and the spirit. And that's going to come into play here with what John is saying about whoever is born of God does not sin. Or uh, some translations add the word continue to because that's, that's what it means. It doesn't mean a, just an, on an individual basis. It means to continue in a lifestyle of sin. Anyone born of God does not continue to live a lifestyle of sin. We all know that as believers we still struggle and we stumble and we do unfortunately still sin. And that's part of what John's been teaching us here in this first epistle is that when we do sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our defense attorney. 1 John 1.9, we talk about it all the time here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not talking about that initial conversion that, or that initial confession that takes place at conversion, it's talking about the ongoing of practice of confession in the life of a believer. And I suspect, I've kind of gotten the impression, being so many years involved in the church, with God, with Christianity, with believers, that I think there are some out there who are under the impression that when you uh, come to Christ... You confess to him that you are a sinner, which is what we're supposed to do. I tell you all the time, I pray for my loved ones, for the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, and part of that process of coming to faith in God, in Christ, is uh, confessing, which means you agree with God. God spells it out very clearly in his word that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when you confess... You're saying, God, you're right. I am a sinner. I confess. And repenting means to turn and go the other way, to turn from your life of sin and begin to follow God. It's all part of the process. But what we're talking about here, we know that in this life, we have not been completely perfected yet. That will take place when we stand before Him. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we will know him even as we are known. Uh, we will be like him when we see him face to face. We will be dwelling in an eternal, incorruptible, immortal, imperishable body. No more dying, no more sickness, no more pain. We will be perfected, not by our own efforts, but by the divine hand of God. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when Paul makes this statement, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's something that we need to believe and to receive. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What he's talking about here is that ideal state, and that's the way that God sees us in Christ. Because when you receive Christ, when you're born again, you are clothed in his robes of righteousness. Do we all know that? He takes those filthy garments of sin 
He removes them. He clothes us in his robes of righteousness. And when God sees us, it's hard for me to understand this because I still know who I am. But God sees us through that lens. So we're sanctified, which means we're set apart unto God. And yet we find that Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's that duality again. We are already eternal in Christ. If you're born again, you are already eternal, and yet this body is not going to make it. We're going to have to cast off this body and get a new one. So we're, we're kind of, as believers here on earth, we're kind of caught between two worlds. We're not really part of this world anymore, but we're not yet fully in God's eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God is within at this point. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, but we have not passed from this life to the next as of yet. So, but we have to, we can't make the, use that as an excuse to be anything less than what God calls us to be and what He says we are. A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And yet, what John is saying here is, anyone who is born of God, whoever is born of God does not sin, does not continue to live a lifestyle of sin. Let me give you some definitions, some words regarding the word or the term lifestyle. It's a set of attitudes, habits, or possessions associated with a particular person or group. I think there was an old program, what is it, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? You remember that? A lot of possessions there, huh? A set of attitudes, habits, or possessions associated with a particular person or group. Someone, if you go into somebody's house and they've got drug paraphernalia laying everywhere, that gives you a big clue as to what their lifestyle is, right? Or if you go in and there's a gigantic liquor cabinet uh, stacked up with all the great various forms of liquid embellishment, that gives you some clue into their lifestyle. In the thesaurus, here are some words that correlate or correspond to lifestyle. Behavior, conduct, habits, style of living, way of acting. Jesus said, what? By their fruits, you will know them. So when we talk about whoever is born of God versus someone who may be a nominal Christian or, as I say, identify as a Christian, the old expression, the proof is in the pudding. Again, we're not looking around to see who's perfect because nobody is. But lifestyle is an indicator of how genuine your faith in Christ really is. We've already seen in chapter 1 that John does not say that anyone born of God never sins. But for the true child of God, a sinful lifestyle should be a thing of the past. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is a passage that tends to ruffle lots of feathers. Do you not know Paul, the Apostle Paul, how many of you believe the Apostle Paul speaks authoritatively as a representative of God? That his words come from God, okay? So this is God speaking to us through Paul. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Anyone and everyone who has never confessed their sins before God, repented, received Christ as Lord and Savior, as I mentioned just a moment ago, anyone who has not been clothed in his robes of righteousness... You are righteous and I am righteous only in, of, and because of Jesus Christ. So the unrighteous are those simply, again, the only difference between us and the uh, non-believer, we're all sinners, it's just that we've been forgiven by the grace of God. And anybody can be forgiven by the grace of God if they choose to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that would be those who have not become true Born of God. Just as John says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. So the unrighteous would be anybody who has not been born of God. 
They're no better, no worse than we are. It's just that they haven't appropriated that forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of Christ. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, God's kingdom is what kind of a kingdom? It's an eternal one, right? So what we're talking about here is not temporary. It is not constrained to this present life, to this world. The kingdom of God is eternal. So what we're talking about here is eternity. So if you don't inherit the kingdom of God, then in terms of eternity, you're in big trouble. Do not be deceived. So what Paul is saying here, to think that you can continue to sin, live a lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle, and still be a part of God's eternal kingdom, if you believe that, you're deceived. Okay? That's deception. Neither fornicators. What's a fornicator? Someone who has relations, intimate relations with anyone they're not married to. Nor idolaters. So an idolatry takes on many forms. I mentioned the balloon gods. Jokingly, I mean, you know, understand I'm not being judgmental or anything. And I do enjoy those balloons. But we have a lot of of different idols that we struggle with, don't we? In our modern world, a lot of those idols are in the world of entertainment, sports. Uh, it can be, I, an idol can be anything. If you're into motorcycles or whatever it might be. Money is an idol. Perhaps the greatest of all idols in this modern world. Fornicators nor idolaters. And again, as believers, do we sometimes struggle with these things? Yes, but this again is referring to that ongoing, purposeful lifestyle where you daily choose to live that way. You yield to it, you give in to it, you don't fight it, you don't try to do the right thing. You just indulge in the desires and the pleasures of the flesh. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers. And so the fornicator is someone who is engaging in illicit uh, relations with Anyone, but the adulterer is someone who is either married and doing that or they're doing it with someone who is married. We know that, right? So there's a distinction. Both are wrong. The Bible only really gives us one godly option in terms of how we relate to the opposite gender. I feel strange even saying that now that There was, uh, oh, I know what it was. It was a a guy who was running for uh, governor of Louisiana. Stirred up a hornet's nest. He's a Republican. And he publicly stated that, and he's a doctor. He's a medical doctor, by the way. He publicly stated that there are only two genders. And everybody went berserk. So he said, I'm a doctor. I can tell the minute the baby's born (laughs) what gender it is. And there's only two of them. So again, up to this point, what we're talking about is men and women interacting inappropriately, but then now notice what the next category is. And so I do want to point out that everybody on this list is treated equally by God. None of them will inherit His kingdom. The next category is homosexuals. So God is not discriminating against homosexuals because He also mentions fornicators, adulterers, and idolaters. But again, it's very easy to understand what's right and wrong because God has spelled it out for us. Why do we make it so difficult? Because because man is rebellious, right? I mean, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Nor sodomites. So it's even broken down within that category. And if you don't know what that means, I'd encourage you to go home and look it up. I'm not going to explain that here this morning. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I suspect that based upon that list, each and every one of us would be excluded from God's kingdom, except for the fact that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've been forgiven. 
But what John is telling us is once you've been born again, born of God, then your lifestyle needs to and should change. And in verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you Corinthians. Some of you here in the Corinthian church were doing these things. You were living these lifestyles, but you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart for God's holy purposes. And you were justified, just as if I'd never sinned. I like that one, don't you? When you're justified by faith in Christ, it's just as if you'd never sinned. And that's why we need to be constantly in the Word, reminding ourselves, because the devil's going to be there constantly telling you, you're still rotten. You're a sinner, man. You blew it this time. God's not going to forgive you. He loves to tell you those kind of lies, doesn't he? You've got to remember, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But Paul, just like John, he's making it abundantly clear here that anyone who continues on in one of these lifestyles of sin, sinful behavior, fornication, idolatry, adultery, and so forth, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, the indicator that we are born of God is not that we're perfect, but that our lifestyle has been altered because the Spirit of God has come to live inside of us and we are a new creation. Now, I really love the next part. That first part's a little intense, isn't it? And you know, it should be. God wants to and does keep us on our toes. It's one of the most dangerous things we can ever do is to become too comfortable, too apathetic, too lethargic, too complacent in our salvation. Do you follow me? I like this part. And the wicked one does not touch him. Or as one translation reads, the evil one cannot harm him. Again, as we keep ourselves in the love of God, as it says in Jude one twenty one, did you know that that's our responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God? God's already done the heavy lifting. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends, right? He's sent his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. And the fruit of the Spirit is agape love. But it's our responsibility to keep ourselves in the love of God by, again, practicing confession of sin, repentance. I've used the example before. Somebody gives you a brand new car. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Don't you love that new car smell? But you know what? Once they've gifted you that car, it's going to be your responsibility to take care of it, to maintain it, right? If you just drive that sucker into the ground, you don't ever change the oil, you don't ever tune it up, you don't ever put air in the tires, and one day you go out there and it's just a pile of junk. I can't believe they gave me this pile of junk. Man, what a drag. They, what a kind of a gift is that? Well, the gift was wonderful, right? It was brand new. You're the one who didn't take care of it. Did you know it's the same thing with your salvation? That's why Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jude one twenty one. keep yourselves in the love of God. Whenever you come across someone who says, well, I used to be a Christian, or I used to go to church, or I used to believe, blah, 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 they did not keep themselves in the love of God. And that's why this lifestyle thing is such a big issue, why it's so important. Because day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the direction that you take in life is going to depend upon how you take care of the gift God's given you. If you take it for granted, if you don't maintain it, part of maintenance is doing what we're here doing here this morning. Do you realize that? Perhaps going to ladies' Bible study on Tuesday morning or Tuesday night, coming to men's prayer meeting. These, and then you have your own responsibilities at home, your own time in the Word, your own time in prayer, and making an effort going to a koinonia group, making an effort to hang out with other believers because I'm telling you, every one of these elements is going to determine whether or not you're going to keep yourselves in the love of God, if you're going to maintain the lifestyle that God has called you to, or are you going to wind up 
identifying as a Christian, being a nominal Christian, in name only, there's a qualifier here. The wicked one does not touch him. But I believe the scriptures clearly teach that for us to be under that protective hand of God, we have to be keeping ourselves in the love of God. Remember 1 Corinthians 5, I think we read this last week, where Paul turned that guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. If you, if you begin to deviate, if you begin to go back to the old ways, the old lifestyle, then I believe God at least to some degree, removes his hand of protection from you because God cares more about your soul than he does about your physical body. And if it t requires you getting beat up physically or mentally, emotionally, in order to get you right with God, then he's going to let that happen because he's concerned with eternity. Paul says, we're turning this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that his spirit might be preserved on the day of judgment. So another thing we should never take for granted is the protective hand of God. Do we have a promise that he will protect us? Absolutely. The wicked one does not touch him. The evil one cannot harm him. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, part of the Lord's Prayer, he teaches the disciples to pray, deliver us from the evil one. But notice the little formula. I'm not a big formula guy, but I, I like this formula here in James 4, 7. Submit to God, uno. Resist the devil, dos. <laughs> I hit my wife with some Spanish this morning too on the way to church. She thought that was pretty cool. I think it was one word. What was that word? Do you remember, Georgie? No? It wasn't a big word. Uno. Therefore, submit to God. Dos. Resist the devil. And I believe that this is in the order that it needs to take place. Submit to God. Humble yourself before God. And that's what you're going to have to do if you're going to get saved. You've got to humble yourself, confess your sins, repent, and then resist the devil when he does come. And by the way, if we think back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, at the end of the chapter after Jesus is baptized... He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, fasting 40 days, 40 nights, be tested by the devil. And the devil kept coming after him. Hey, if you're the Son of God, since you are the Son of God and you've been fasting for 40 days, I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn that rock into a loaf of bread? Remember the whole scenario? And every time Satan would try to test or tempt Jesus, how did Jesus respond? Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. Remember? Jesus set the example. How do you resist the devil? You rely upon the truth of God's word. You're a liar, Satan. And here's how, here's how I know you're a liar. And you use the word of God against him. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Another way you can resist the devil is by not putting yourself deliberately in places where the devil and his folks hang out. Right? If you want to resist the devil, guys, you don't go to a strip club, right? If you want to resist the devil, you don't go to some gnarly bar or nightclub where Satan and his guys love to hang out. You avoid those places where you know he's likely to be. Now, that's not to say that he might not be hanging around here trying to harass us, but we trust God for a hedge of protection for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to fill this place, and he can get out of here. And I believe he already has. He hates worship, I'll tell you that. But you resist them with the power of God's word, the truth of God's word. You resist them by avoiding going to those places where you know he's most likely to be. And he will flee from you. So there is something of a formula here, a pattern, if you will. Submit to God, humble yourself. The Bible says that, you know, pride goes before a fall. One of the surest ways to guarantee that some kind of trouble is going to befall you is to allow yourself to become puffed up with pride and arrogance. To think that you've got it all together. You're perfect now. You're better than those around you. And you know, God, I got it all under control, but if I need you, I know where to find you. That's, that's not how it works, is it? We want him with us every moment of every day, do we not? 
It's not like, hey, Lord, I can handle this one. Really? I want him with me every step of the way and everything that I do. How about you? So submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. So that's a promise. The wicked one does not touch him. In fact, you've heard me say this before. I think oftentimes we give the devil too much airtime. Sometimes believers, you hear them use the word of Satan or the devil more than you hear them talk about Jesus. The devil did this. The devil did that. Really? Well, I don't understand that because God promised the devil's not going to be able to touch you. So if the devil's doing all this stuff in your life, then maybe you aren't keeping yourself in the love of God. Either that or you're just giving him way too much credit. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. What a stark contrast. We know that we are and some translations includes the word children. We know that we are of God or we are children of God. And the whole world is under the sway or the control of the wicked or the evil one. Here we see it again. We know. It's John's purpose. It's John's intent. And it's John's belief that everyone who is born of God can know these things. We can grasp them. We can take hold of them. We can build our lives upon these truths. And one of the things that John says we know or should know is that we are children of God. It's another characteristic of true believers, true children of God, that we know, that we know, that we know. How many times have we said that? How many times have we heard that? And John uses this phrase, we know, 18 times in 16 verses in the book of John. So again, anybody who identifies as a believer, and yet when push comes to shove, the phrase I know isn't part of their vocabulary, then I would encourage that person to go back to square one and make sure that you've truly been born again, that you've truly yielded your life to God, you've truly put your faith in Christ as the Savior of your soul, because if you have, according to God's word, you should know that you know that you know. It's sad that there are many sects, S-E-C-T, sects, religious groups, many belief systems where the followers do not know. And some of those are within the umbrella of the Christian church. That's no way to live. Why even identify as a Christian, as a believer, if you're going to go through life uncertain, doubting, insecure? That's not why Jesus died on the cross. You think he went through all that for you to be insecure? No. And John tells us, we know we're children of God. If you're here this morning and you can't say that, I'm going to encourage you at the end of the service, we, have an altar, we call it an altar call. We don't have an altar per se. But we invite people to come up for prayer, for whatever they need prayer for. And if you're here this morning and you can't say that you know that you're a child of God, then I would encourage you to come up and get prayer so you can know. Because you can. And if there's anything in this life that you really need to know, this is it. You could go through life unsure and uncertain about everything else, but if you know that you're a child of God, that's all that you really need. Because that has to do with eternity, as we talked about earlier. This is an eternal issue. And by the way, this knowledge comes not from any confidence that we might place in ourselves. Oh boy, I did it. I got saved. I received Christ. I'm great. No, you're not. <laughs> he is. We, it's, it does not come from any confidence that we put within our own flesh, our own abilities. It's all Him. It comes from having absolute confidence in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. We know that we are children of God. And then the big contrast. The whole world is under the, lies under the sway of the wicked one or the evil one, the whole world. Do you ever feel like you're in the minority? 
You are. You are. And here, there's that tremendous pressure. Wow, the whole world believes this. The whole world thinks this. Am I just a weirdo or an oddball? No, you're a child of God. But the whole world is under the sway. Why are they so different? Why do they think so differently? Why do they believe so differently? Because they are under the sway or control, as one translation reads, of the wicked one, of the evil one, Satan. And of course, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the father of all lies, and his goal through the people who are on his side, whether they know it or not, he works through them to try to make you feel like you're the weirdo, you're the oddball, you're the one who is wrong, you're the one who needs to change your way of thinking, you need to change your way of living. But it's satanic, you see, in its origin. And sadly, many people are falling sway to that in the church. I think we're up around now about 50% of people who identify as Christians are okay with abortion, they're okay with gay marriage. Boy, if you were to look at it just through the natural lens, it would almost seem like the devil's winning. But he's not, and he won't. The question is, is he winning in your life? I hope not. He is winning with some people. They're under his sway now. They've given way to the pressure. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one, the wicked one, even as this world and the people in it are under Satan's control. And by the way, I suspect that many of you are pretty conscious and aware of the things that are happening today in our world, in our own nation, but things that I've been seeing coming for a long time, perhaps you have too, but... You know, every movement, whether it's been a Christian movement or a secular movement has been spearheaded by young people. Perhaps some older people behind the scenes may be pulling the strings, but the thrust of Christian revivals down through history, the most recent one, the Jesus movement, was a youth revival, a youth movement, and then it influenced and affected the whole church, people of all ages, but it was a youth movement. You look at the Nazi movement in Germany, the uh, socialist movement in Russia, the revolution, the Russian revolution. These are all spearheaded by young people. Why? Because young people are energetic, they're vibrant, right? I mean, those of us here today that are older, we know how as you get older, that youthful energy begins to kind of dissipate. I mean, there are some positive things about getting older. Hopefully, you gain some wisdom, right? Some knowledge some experience, but you're probably not going to be out there in the streets leading some kind of a revolution. That is the realm of young people. And now all across our nation, I don't know if you've watched any of the happenings of this past week, riots, protesters, not peaceful protesters, they came, claim to be against everything that they actually do. But again, that is satanic. They're under the sway of the evil one. But to me, it looks very much like we have the potential for an uprising. And it's already being fomented and fertilized in our nation's colleges and universities and even high schools. Do you know that? There are now massive numbers of young people in our nation who believe that we older folks are destroying the planet. Climate change. They're dropping by the thousands, folks, all around us. Have you noticed? All over the world, people are dropping dead from climate change. Have you seen that? No, you haven't, because it is, doesn't exist. Even the polar bears who were supposed to be dying off are flourishing. Again, the whole world is under the sway of who? But here's what's happening. These young people... I've been saying this for years. I've offended so many people for attacking public education. But everything that I said is coming to pass. Does that mean I'm saying that every single person 
and the public education system is bad? No. But through the years, it's gotten worse and worse and worse, and it's no longer about educating. It's about brainwashing and manipulating. It's a fact. I dare anyone to prove me wrong. It's a fact. I don't care whether it's sexual issues, gender, climate change. You go right down the line. And they're even, I, I forget, is it Washington? One of the states, one of these crazy liberal states, Washington, California, somewhere, they're, they're coming up with new rules having to do with that now mathematics is tied to racial discrimination. <laughs> I'm serious. Don't you dare tell, if somebody says two and two is five, you better leave them alone. I'm serious. What I'm trying to tell you is be praying be watching. I believe in the not-too-distant future, we're looking at a youth uprising, and it's going to result in violence and death. Because these young people, and some of the older ones too, but the young people have more strength, more energy, more vitality, more motivation, and they're getting to the point where they believe anyone who doesn't agree with what they've been brainwashed in throughout their educational lives is worthy of punishment, including death. If you don't believe in climate change, it's, it's very close to the point where they're going to believe that you, you deserve to die because you are a destroyer. You're destroying our planet with your SUVs and everything else and your cow flatulence. I know. I know. I see it coming, folks. I'll never stand up and call myself a prophet, but I have to say through the years, many of the things I've seen, many of the things I've said... They've all come to pass. Why? Because God gives us insight. In this book of 1 John, John says we have an unction. We have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. We can discern truth from deception. If we will listen, if we'll open our spiritual eyes and ears, God will show us things. The youth of this nation are being weaponized. And at some point, it's already erupting. Anybody who dares to think differently, believe differently, is being attacked, not just verbally, physically. And it's going to get worse. You need to be praying, you need to be watching, listening. It's on the horizon. God's in control, but that doesn't mean we should bury our heads in the sand, does it? Somehow, with God's help, we've got to reach this younger generation. It has to be a work of God's Spirit. We can't do it through fake, phony, seeker-friendly garbage. It's got to be the real deal. Our fearless leader, Jesus Christ, is not seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, or emergent. He's the way, the truth, and the life. It's on the horizon. Now, how bad it gets before the rapture, I don't know, but I want to be ready. And I don't mean by, you know, stockpiling weapons and all this stuff, but I mean really mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I want to be in the game. I want to be focused. I want to know. And God wants us to know how to pray, what to pray for, what's going on, where are these things leading. Because the whole world is what? Under the sway of the wicked one. Those who are truly born again. Oh, I wanted to mention too. Even as this world and the people in it are under Satan's control, the stark contrast between God's children and those who are of the, of the enemy, God's children are to be under his control. We must fight the desire, the urge to blend in and be like the world. And there's a lot of that going on too. Those who are truly born again also know and understand who Satan is and what his agenda is. That's another aspect. If you are totally blind to the machinations of the wicked one, then again, I, I question, are you truly born of God? Because if you are, you will not be blind to his machinations, to his activities, to his M.O., And by the way, you can't believe in the God of the Bible and His Son without believing in the reality of Satan because Jesus clearly does 
believe in his reality, and he talks about it. This verse, Ephesians 6.12, reminds us of the ongoing spiritual battle we face on a daily basis. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul, again, writing here in Ephesians, describing that entire demonic hierarchy and realm of, of powers, rulers, principalities, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, Satan's army. That's where the real battle is. He works through human instruments, but ultimately it's a spiritual battle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. All right, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, as I just mentioned. It's impossible to have any true spiritual insight without personal relationship and personal revelation through the living Son of God, Jesus Christ. We know. Here's another thing John says we know. We know the Son of God has come. It's an historical fact. John's an eyewitness. He starts his book of 1 John with giving his eyewitness account. We know. There are some who question it. There are some who doubt it. A true believer, a true child of God will know that Jesus is real, that he really came into this world 2,000 years ago and he really did die on the cross for our sins and he really did rise from the dead. And he's given us understanding. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, you know, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those guys, our Old Testament is comprised Moses, the writings of these men inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's how God spoke to us in times past, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. We know through Jesus Christ, he's given us understanding, he's spoken to us, that we may know him who is true. And as the rest of this verse demonstrates, him who is true speaks of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The most important knowledge, wisdom, and understanding we can ever attain is that of knowing him who is true. John 14, 6. You know this one. We mention this one a lot. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That we may know, there's another no for you, him who is true, Jesus. John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And John says here in verse 20 of 1 John 5, we are in him who is true. So John's speaking of that intimate connection we have with the Father through his Son. John 14, 19 and 20, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. He's right now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But you will see me. How is that possible? Because I live, you will live also, and that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. How do we see Jesus if he's not here on earth, if he's in heaven with the Father? He lives inside of us. We see him with our spiritual eyes and ears. We hear him with our ears. We see him with our eyes. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. So John is speaking of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's sometimes difficult to tell when John is speaking of the Father, when he's speaking of the Son. Why is that? Because they're one and the same, inextricably connected throughout all eternity. Uh, we, we talked not long ago about praying to the Father in the name of Jesus. That's how we're instructed to do it. But we understand that they're one and the same. One God, three persons. And then he says this, or he... One translation uses the word he. He is the true God. And here John is confirming the deity of Jesus Christ. There are those all the time who argue. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God, really. Oh, no, not except all over the place. There are so many verses that talk about Jesus as God. 
The people who tell you that the Bible doesn't say Jesus of God, they haven't read the Bible. Get it? I mean, whether it's the secular world or the spiritual world, the people out there telling you all this stuff are the ones who've never even read it. Perhaps like a recent phone call transcript made by our president of the Ukraine. They hadn't read it, so they just made up their own version. Gee, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And that doesn't just mean in terms of spiritual things. It's every area of society. Every part of our lives, we're battling against the fact that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Folks, you have to be aware of that every day, all the time, because he's out to deceive anybody and everybody he can, and you're not immune. You've got to keep yourself in the love of God. You've got to keep yourself in the love of Christ. You've got to exercise the knowledge, the insight, the unction, the anointing that he's given you. You cannot slack up for a moment. This, or he, is the true God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, big W, the Word was with, was with God. Jesus is the Word, the Logos. He was there with God, and the Word was God. Hello, another verse that tells you Jesus is God. So let's just put that to rest once for all, shall we? In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God, and He's not only the true God, He is eternal life. We just read it, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 3.16, we all know it, right? God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. If you want eternal life, and you should. And again, I mentioned this not long ago. Some people say, well, man, if it's going to be like this, forget it. I don't want to live forever. It ain't going to be like this, baby. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be better than you can possibly imagine. It's going to be everything God intended from the very beginning. Anybody who says they don't want eternal life hasn't got a clue because it's going to be amazing. And besides that, you only have two options, eternal life or eternal death, which is a, a conscious state of existence in eternal torment. Oh, I'll take the good one. I mean, really, who wouldn't? If they knew, only knew, if they only understood, we've got God help us to help them understand what their options are. There's one option that's tremendous, it's fabulous, it's great, and there's one that's absolutely horrible beyond imagination. So there's no eternal life outside of Christ. Let's just make that clear. That's not fair. Why not? You can choose Jesus. Nobody said you can't. Now, in some countries, sadly, people are being, have guns held to their head and other weapons and saying, you deny Christ or you're going to die. But the fact of the matter is, that's a lie too. Because if you don't deny Christ, there's no way you can die. They can shoot you, they can stab you, they can do whatever they want. And the moment they do, you're with Him. It's a no-lose situation. And we better remember that because that kind of persecution, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, could very well be coming to our nation. Most of us struggle just to live for Christ, but are we ready to die for Him? We need to be. We need to be. And again, they can't kill you. Again, little children, verse 21, or dear children, as some translations read, for the ninth and final time in this epistle, John calls his readers little or dear children. So this is a love letter. There are moments that are very comforting, encouraging, strengthening. There are others that are very challenging, but understand this is a love letter from John to his little children, his dear children, and that would include us. Keep yourselves from idols. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, idolatry is considered to be the gravest and most grievous of sins. Idolatry is what did Israel in, folks. And an idol is anything or anyone that we use as a substitute for God. Here is a real uh, in-depth definition. Any person or thing regarded with blind admiration 
adoration, or devotion. A family member could be an idol. A friend could be an idol. A movie star could be an idol. Any person or thing regarded with blind admiration, adoration, or devotion, a mere image or semblance. We have your icons in the Eastern Orthodox. We have your saints in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm sorry to say it. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but those are idols. They just are. Are there people who love God in those churches? Absolutely. But there is a problem. Statues of Mary. Man, it's it's rampant in New Mexico. I'm going to let God be the judge, but I'm telling you, those are idols. A mere image or semblance of something visible without, without substance. I used to be jealous of my Catholic friends growing up because they had these real cool St. Christopher medals and stuff. You know, and we Protestants, we didn't get any of that cool stuff. <laughs> but they're without substance. They're jewelry, right? A mere image or semblance of something visible without substance as a phantom, a figment of the mind. So you can see how the enemy would want to use that stuff, Right? You think you're being spiritual, you think you're being religious, but you're really just being hoodwinked. It's a figment of the mind, it's an idol, fantasy, a false conception or notion, fallacy. That's idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. John's final warning to his readers here in 1 John. That's something we probably all need to work on. In this epistle, John's presented himself to us as an eyewitness of the incarnation of the one and only Son of the living God, the God-man Jesus Christ. He's emphasized the absolute importance of standing on and staying in the truth, God's Word, and in Jesus Christ Himself. Hand in hand with his emphasis on truth, he's also stressed the importance of loving one another as the primary evidence that we truly love God. I'm giving you a recap here as we close. We know has been a major theme. In this final chapter, John has taught us about being confident in approaching God, that we can have confidence asking according to God's will. That's where the confidence comes. How do we know God's will? By His Word. When we don't know His will, we say, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. Father knows best. God, Godly, Spirit-filled, Spirit-led prayers we talked about last time, the Lord's Prayer as a model, not just something to be repeated wrote by memory over and over again, but as a model of how to approach God. He's warned us against sinning unto death. We looked at that last week. Deliberately continuing to practice a sinful lifestyle. We're to pray for each other, hold each other accountable, and restore one another when we fall. Finally, John exhorts us to steer clear of idols. Ultimately, every idol will fall, but God and those who worship Him will stand forever. I want to read this. I love this passage in 1 Samuel 5 where he talks about this uh, idol, Dagon. Verse 1, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They're on the uh, Mediterranean coast and and, uh, now in the Gaza Strip, Ashdod. Or right next to it anyway. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it in the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So you got God's ark which represents his presence, the Shekinah glory and all that. And then you got this idol next to it. The Philistines stole the ark. They take it in there and they set it next to their idol. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Don't you love that? So they took Dagon, set it in its place again. They picked him up. When they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. In the middle of the night, God makes this idol fall down before him. I love it. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hand were broken off on the threshold. Poor Dagon. (laughs) Only Dagon's torso was left of it. You see how that works, folks? Every idol will fall, but those who worship God will stand forever with him. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not material. You don't fight the enemy with guns and knives and clubs. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that's what's happened. Satan has established strongholds in the hearts and minds and lives of people. They're under his sway. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that's why I say we must be in prayer, we must be aware, we must be watching, we must be, hey, Peter says, be alert, be watchful. Your enemy, Satan, uh, wanders to and fro about the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But I tell you what, he's not getting me for lunch. How about you? Let's stand. We're going to give an opportunity now. I mentioned earlier, we read a number of things this morning that John says that we as believers should know. If you can't say this morning that you know, I encourage you to come for prayer. And maybe you're just struggling. The enemy's been attacking you. I say we give him too much credit, but he does. He does attack God's children. He does attempt to wear us down. He does attempt to deceive us. And if you're struggling with some of those things this morning, I would encourage you to come for prayer. If you've decided that maybe you're not actually born again, but you'd like to be, you don't want to just identify as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. You really want to be one. I'd encourage you to come for prayer. Whatever else it is. A lot of people have health issues. We want to pray for those. How many believe that God can and will heal our physical bodies? Again, it has to be according to His will. But He says you have not because you ask not. Ask, seek, and knock. I encourage you, whatever's going on in your life that may be concerning you, troubling you, you come if you desire prayer this morning.